Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining me here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. Today, we have Brandon George on the show. He's the Executive Director of the Indiana Addictions Issues Coalition, or IAIC. Um, We're talking about peer recovery support specialists today. It's an area that I think has a lot of potential. You know, from a business standpoint, it's a little bit ambiguous as to how it's going to be implemented, especially from a payment perspective, but we'll get into that. You know, there are some people already paying for it, um, some of the insurance providers, some state actors, and it's a pretty low cost option. So there's potential for private pay there as well with a huge benefit to outcomes in terms of um, supporting people in recovery. So I really wanted to have Brandy on the show because this is one of his key issues that he's working with here in the state of Indiana. Um, we've seen each other around a lot. We work together here at the Recovery Network Association, and which is now the Indiana Recovery Network Association. Um, also, when Facing Addiction was in town, doing some community organizations, um, we worked together on that. So I am very excited by what Brandon's doing here. He's very passionate. He has a lot of expertise and a lot of connections um, to make things happen at the state level and bring people together. So he has a lot of information that is worth hearing and a perspective on how to make this work, not just for a particular center that you're running, but also in the community at large. Um, as always, the Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic marketing and growth for addiction treatment and behavioral health centers. If you want to learn more about us, you can go to our website at www.circlesocialinc.com. With that, let's get into the conversation with Brandon. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Can you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Nick. My name is Brandon George. I am the director of Indiana Addictions Issues Coalition. We're a statewide advocacy group. Uh, main focus is on public education, trying to help inform public policy. Um, and as a person in long-term recovery, this is a passion of mine. Um, it's where my education's at. It's where um, what I do professionally, and it's also personally affected me. So um, one of the main goals is to try to to be as useful as possible, Um, and sometimes that shows up in a variety of ways. Great. So we've met through a variety of things here in Indiana. So for the audience, we both live here in Indianapolis, and we connect through the Recovery Network Association. Um, When Facing Addiction was here, we went through that training with Michael King variety of other issues. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Indiana Addictions Issues Coalition does here in Indiana? Absolutely. So IAIC IAIC is how we refer to it. And it's an advocacy group. So when you think of your main advocacy topics around addiction, that's the space that we're going to be in. Um, So one of the main things right now is stigma reduction, trying to get people to change language that they're using. Um, around addiction and, and refer to clinical diagnosis like substance use disorders and and less stigmatizing language to get away from addict and abuser and some of those terms that, that we know now um, increase punitive measures. Another big effort that we've been in implementation of recovery support services and that's going to include peer recovery coaches, peer supports as a whole, um, recovery housing, recovery community organizations. Um, For far too long, we've treated this as an acute care issue. And regardless of the terminology we want to use, we know it's more of a chronic condition that's going to be ongoing. And we really need to set up our communities to help provide services to people, not just for 30, 60, 90 days, but 
ongoing. And the recovery support services are really a key ingredient in our communities providing the proper support to people who are struggling with this. So that's why I really wanted to have you on the show and have you talk about today, because I know you're really pushing the peer recovery support at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about specifically what that person's role is and how it fits into whether it's a treatment center or from a hospital or you know outside of that? You know, What do they do? How do they work? And, and where is their value in terms of someone in recovery? Absolutely. So uh, peer support services is what, what we call them. And um, it's pretty exactly much what it sounds like. Um, these are peers. These are people who have personal lived experience um, in a certain area. For some people, it's substance use disorders. For some people, it's mental health. Uh, for some people, it's being a, a family member or a parent of somebody with something. And utilizing that lived experience to help people through their journey. Um, addiction has been really siloed off from the general health care system. So normally when you have a health care issue, um, you go to your primary care doctor, the point of entry. He's going to refer you to the proper places and, um, or just treat you himself or herself. And that's not so with substance use disorder. It was siloed off uh, long, long ago. And people are really at the mercy um, of Google searches to figure out where to get treatment at. Most families in need, they, they, they Google, hey, detox, rehab, um, halfway house, versus going to a place based on merits and having a recovery coach or a peer support to help guide somebody through that process whether it be to a place that, that helps with medication or whether it's a place for housing or um, a detox facility is really, really critical um, and can save families a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources. Um, and it's, it's really becoming a, um, a key part of the continuum. These are not clinical services, so that's a really important distinction. These are not junior counselors. Um, these are people who have been there before that, that know their way in between different organizations and know the nuances of it and can really help families out. Um, putting them in places um, where the main points of entry are really critical. So you think about people who overdose and go to the emergency department, that's going to be a key place for, for peer supports. People who are leaving um, jails, uh, we got a lot of peer supports in jails. Obviously, this is been criminalized um, for some time now, and while we're still trying to pull it more into the healthcare system, it's still very much treated as a criminal issue. So um, it's important to have peer supports in jails. Um, the biggest place that we'd like to see them, and, and we need to increase this, is recovery organizations in the community, community-based organizations that are not tied to any one specific system. One of the benefits of a peer support or a recovery coach is they're going to get you to the best place. And if they're not independent when they're making that decision, if they are uh, being hired by a specific agency, um, it's hard to get a, you know, unbiased opinion on where the person should be going if they're being paid by somebody. So uh, we like for them to be in apolitical places if possible. So I think when most people think about peer recovery support specialists, they're often thinking of post-treatment, you know, someone that will kind of walk them through and almost be, you know, um, a sponsor in a sense. But you're talking more about pre-treatment, you know, someone that helps you navigate what treatment looks like, where an appropriate place to go would be. Uh, 
Can you talk a little bit about that distinction? Do you see people helping out in both places? Is it the same person? You know, where do you think the best fit for a, a peer support specialist is? So what, in a perfect world, um, which we don't have, they would be with them through the entire journey. And there's one area that really has this figured out, the um, child services and Department of Child Services and, and, and when, when children are in the foster system, um, they're appointed what's called a cost, uh, child advocate. And that person, it doesn't matter if this kid goes to 15 different foster homes or, or uh, gets adopted, it has one person that is attached to this kid the entire time. And that way that person never um, gets lost and always has somebody that's advocating for them and helping them out. And in a perfect world, that's what a, a recover a peer support would do. They would be there from the moment of engagement looking for services. They would also be with them if once they get healthy, um, helping them, you know, get education, get jobs, different supports that happen more in the recovery process versus the, the treatment side of it. Um, but um, that becomes very difficult when you talk about payer sources um, because, you know, if they're going, if they're being hired by a treatment facility, obviously um, that person is not going to stay with them five years into recovery because the, the treatment provider will no longer be for providing services for them. So um, there's limitations where some of them are, um, and uh, the less restrictions we put on them, the better, so that they can stay with them. And um, that person, even if they get ill again or whether they, they start using again, they've got a point of contact that they know personally that wants to help them, um, that's a resource for them, when they do decide to, to get back engaged in treatment and or recovery. Yeah, I think that would be really hard, you know, in the beginning stages when a family or an individual is first looking for treatment, because if we think about exactly what you're talking about in terms of, you know, being able to follow them through the entire process, I mean, probably the only way that could be worked out is if, A, the government was paying for it, you know, so like a CASA, someone tracks along the entire journey, or B, the insurance payers are paying for it, you know, so you talk to your insurance company, they connect you with a recovery support specialist, and they'll walk you through everything. Because if we put it in the hands of like a hospital or in, in the hands of a treatment center, there just becomes all those, you know, gray areas, especially with patient broker and everything, right? You, you gotta be so sensitive around those directions. And luckily we don't have those problems in Indiana nearly to the degree of some other states. But um, I, yeah, I, I see that being really challenging. Do you, in your work um, with IAC, do you see any progress being made in terms of government support or in terms of possibly working with the payers themselves? I think there's a lot of opportunity everywhere. Um, the state of Indiana has really bought into the idea of peer supports and specifically recovery coaching. Um, there's a fair amount of data um, specifically from the East Coast and Boston, Connecticut, um, Vermont around peer supports. And a couple years ago, the state decided that this is something that they want to be more prominent in, in our system. So <clears throat> while it's not being paid for right now by payers, by, by insurance companies, What's happened is is the state has tried to fill part of that gap. And so they have given um, funding to a variety of emergency departments, to some community centers, in an effort to ramp up the workforce right now um, so that people can get trained, so that people can get put into positions. And they've been actually a great partner over the last, I guess, two years now. 
helping um, with getting this as a reimbursable expense in Medicaid. I think the thought is once that happens, the other payers will follow suits. Mm. Um, so it's it's a you know these cha- types of changes don't happen overnight. Implementing a completely new position into a variety of industries is a, a massive undertaking. Um, and it's just kind of one step at a time. Um, the hope is that this will be a, a reimbursable expense um, in the very near future. And by very near future, I mean within the next year. Um, and there'll be a lot more opportunity to have these people with, engage with people that need help um, throughout the different stages of their journey. Okay, and you mentioned data coming out of the East Coast. And I don't know if you know any of that off the top of your head, but what, is there any data that you think you can share? Well, one that we did immediately, so uh, we received a grant from the federal government from Health and Human Human Services through SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, a three-year grant for um, to, to help implement um, workforce infrastructure. And along with that is we collected some data along with it. We had IU School of Medicine um, do our data collection and what they found out is they were able to put out a report a white paper essentially saying that the use of recovery coaches um, helps reduce overdoses in people with substance use disorder um, and it also decreased uh, the uh, amounts of relapse so I can certainly share that with the group so that if people have access to it through this podcast or, or through our site and uh, so people can reference it when needed. Sure, okay, well that'd be great. I think probably the easiest way to do that would be contacting myself or you. So um, we'll share our contact details at the end of the podcast and people can reach out to us to get access to those documents. Uh, looking at peer recovery support specialists from more of um, a treatment center end of things. So obviously they're probably gonna be doing it more on the post treatment end. Can you talk about what it looks like with current partners you have here in Indiana or just other you know, organizations you're aware of in terms of how a center actually hires a peer recovery support specialist and how they work with an individual um, post-treatment? Absolutely. So um, treatment providers, um, people that deal specifically with addictions or hospitals, there's a, a variety of ways to go about it. There's actually a statewide organization now, a professional organization for peer support. It's called the... Uh, Indiana Association of Peer Recovery Support Services. It's a mouthful, but they call it IPRIS. Um, and that helps with job postings. It helps facilitate uh, in the hiring process for people who are looking to implement peer supports into their continuum of care. Um, it provides both people for the workforce and some technical assistance for organizations that say, hey, um, we've done a research on peer support. We want to implement this as a component of what we do, and we, we, we want to do it right. How do we go about it? And this organization uh, helps provide some technical assistance and can help uh, people fill positions as well. Okay, and let's get into a little bit more specifics about what a peer support specialist actually does. So first, like, do they have any qualifications? If so, what are they? And then what are they exactly doing? I mean, what would be the difference between a peer support specialist and you know, a regular sponsor, for example? So one of the things that, that I'd like to, I guess, kind of put up first is there's a couple different, you know, types of peer supports. And the main component is that they have lived experience in that area. So for recovery coaches, their main area of expertise is substance use disorder. 
And what's going to happen is the person in recovery wants to give back or they think this might be a good type of position for them. Um, they go through a um, week-long training. It's 30 hours, um, essentially a, a, a full week of training where you get basics on substance use disorder. It's very similar actually to a bachelor's program in addictions counseling. It teaches about motivational interviewing. It teaches about the trans theoretical model and other behavioral health sciences and uh, interventions to give them basic different pathways to recovery, etc. Beyond that, they also take ethics training, HIV and AIDS training, some other basics. So they have some, some groundwork. You know, we certainly don't want anybody um, doing any harm to somebody that they're trying to help. So getting them some information and the tools needed to be helpful is really, really critical. Um, recovery coaches also have to have 40 hours of continuing education units every two years to make sure that they're up to date on, uh, you know, the newest, most effective information in that area. Um, and this is, you know, the lived experience is what's going to engage somebody with another person, make a personal connection. Um, but their training is going to be what gets that person to the proper resources. You mentioned a, a sponsor. So in 12-step recovery, people get what's called sponsors that can help, uh, you know, them work through that specific program. Recovery coaches and peer supports are more of a step back. They're going to help that person decide if it's a 12-step program they should be engaging in. Maybe that's not it. Maybe the person is a better fit for um, smart recovery, which is uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy-based. Maybe they're very religious, and they should go to something called Celebrate Recovery, which is more for people um, who have a, you know, prefer a religious program. So this is going to help the person actually make the decision of what type of ongoing programs they want to be connected with versus any one specific program. What about life skills training? You know, is that their role? Do they help with job and housing and things like that? Absolutely. So in, in healthcare, what we call, I guess, you know, social determinants is how we measure health and um, how it impacts people. In recovery, we call it recovery capital. And what we're hoping to improve here, it's really less about whether or not somebody's taking a specific substance and where more about, um, you know, are their inter interpersonal relationships positive? Are they employed? Have they increased their education level? Um, have they cleaned up, you know, any criminal issues they may have and a recovery coach is going to be able to help them move each of those areas forward so sometimes that is engaging in, in life skills classes or teaching groups around that area um, recovery coaches can do a variety of things the majority of it is one-on-one -on -one, but sometimes it does occur in a group setting if it's at a treatment facility or maybe inside of a jail um, and teach them basic um, life skills. You know, a lot of times people with substance use disorders are um, honing different skills um, while um, in the midst of an addiction. So um, if they've missed, uh, missed on anything or haven't sharpened certain life skills, we definitely want to make sure we provide them um, with the opportunity to, to help out there. And what about the frequency of contact? You know, how often is a recovery coach reaching out? And then even if we think about it just from a, a you know, business payment model, you know, are people getting charged per hour? You know, are they, are they limited in the amount of time they're able to reach out? How, how do the, some of those logistics work out? 
So um, this varies a little bit. I think that I hate speaking with a whole bunch, without a bunch of data behind me, but um, anecdotally what we see is the most effective is for, for them to engage once a week. They do um, bill, the, the ones that are billable do so by the quarter hour, and usually meetings are in between 15 minutes and one hour. And when people are engaged on a weekly basis, that seems to be the most effective. Um, in some settings, it's once a month. Um, in some settings, it's completely dependent on the person. You know, um, as a, a peer and a non-clinician, you know, the last thing you want to do is force something that somebody does not want. So um, it's all voluntary, but trying to get people set up on some type of regular routine is positive as well. So. Once a week, once every two weeks, uh, seems to be the industry standard right now. Okay. And then what's the average salary for a recovery coach at the moment? Well, we see, uh, you know, I don't know that a clear standard has been set in this area because it is newer. By newer, I mean the last, you know, three years, it's really gotten popular. Um, I would say um, hiring range for people um, Without any experience, is probably in the twelve to fifteen dollar an hour range. People that do have experience, or that's combined with education as well, like a bachelor's degree, you're going to be more in the fifteen to twenty dollar an hour range. So I think we did pull some data on this, and last year, and twelve to twenty was the feedback that we got. Okay, I think that's important to look at. You know, from the business end, if let's say we average that at fifteen dollars an hour, well, if you're doing one patient one hour a week, you know, that only comes out to, I mean, what sixty dollars a month, right? Which is seven hundred twenty dollars a year. So it's a very low cost um, way to help people post treatment. You know, it's, so I think there's just a lot of advantages to this model. Do you guys have any outcomes data in terms? I mean, I know it's it's new, but in terms of you know effectiveness and things like that. Um, we do not personally, there is some out there, like I said, that I would be happy to share, um, with you, um, and hopefully we can get it out to some people if anybody's interested. And I agree with you, the, the really cheap when it comes to healthcare, um, way to supplement somebody's recovery process. Um, so, um, the payment right now, I think what, um, programs, there are a couple individualized programs that do reimburse, and I think that it's somewhere around... Twelve dollars a quarter hour, so um, it's not going to be a huge money maker for an organization, but it should be enough to cover costs and add something that's pretty important. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and you know, even if you look at it from a private pay standpoint, you know, it doesn't come out to be that much. You know, if the person did have to pay out of pocket, especially you know, in the sense that maybe they're helping out with housing and jobs and things like that, you know, where it could end up paying for itself. And from the treatment center perspective and from the patient perspective, I think there's all this opportunity to keep that communication, that relationship going. So if you do see signs that are maybe going in a negative direction, well, you can help someone get reconnected to the resources that they need or reconnected to the appropriate level of care so that it doesn't progress to you know another like inpatient stay, for example. Absolutely. I think that there's a, you know, the, the quicker we can re-engage somebody, the much better off for all parties, like you said, avoiding ER trips and inpatient stays. Uh, you know, for those that are just, you know, um, I don't want to say more concerned, but, you know, uh, acutely aware of the financial impacts of addiction and substance use disorder, this is clearly a way to, to mitigate some costs. 
And I know that there are, so just this year, MAPS, if anyone's familiar with MAPS, they um, implement a similar program and they just started getting payers to cover it. I think Cigna and maybe, maybe Blue Cross Blue Shield were two of the payers that are actually covering this. So there is precedent out there. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's a couple states that are looking at it as well. So if this is something that's gonna move forward in that direction, it's definitely worthwhile I think, you know, thinking about a program now, getting it on the ground floor and maybe get some, some test cases out so that once it is reimbursable, you know, you're in a position to do that or even if it's not, you know, looking at private pay models for continuing care. Because um, obviously on the patient outcomes end, while we don't have the data yet, as we all know, like longer term treatment is better, right? So I think the more we can keep people connected. Uh, Brandon, your end, what do you see as the needs for this as, I don't know if I want to say a movement, but kind of a process moving forward? You know, what do we need to do to make it more integrated into the overall healthcare system and recovery in general? Well, um, I don't know that there's a much bigger issue than trying to get this pushed back into the um, primary healthcare um, setting, the general general healthcare as a whole, um, and this can be a slow ship to turn, but training uh, primary care physicians, family doctors. Um, there was a study done by Harvard not too long ago that showed that the average uh, physician gets one hour of addiction training um, throughout medical school, one hour. And it was just baffling to me. Um, and not to mention that there are no continuing med medical education requirements um, for doctors who don't have admitting privileges. So I say that to say, you know, India is a really rural place, and you've got a lot of family doctors, a lot of community doctors um, that, you know, if they don't choose to get continuing education, they don't, they, they don't have to. There, there's nothing with their license that requires it. And um, medicine around addiction, treatment of addiction has changed drastically. And we need to make sure that people have the most up-to-date information. So um, I would really like to see more robust um, training for doctors um, during school, which that is beginning to happen. Um, and they've got to join this. Uh, I hate to use the term fight, but they got to join in this. And um, the lack of treatment, I think 10% of people with addiction or substance use disorder actually are able to, to, to get into treatment um, is a shame. Um, for us, society, you know, as a society, um, we've got to do better than that with helping people, especially something having a huge negative impact on families, communities, um, and people throughout, not just our state, but the country. Okay. And you were talking a little bit about certifications, but let's say that I'm a recovery center and I want to um, hire a recovery coach. You know, where would I look to find someone or, or what certification programs would I want to send them through? So one of the, um, the the model that for the most part is being used in Indiana is something called a speed car model, and it's out of Connecticut. They've been in the recovery coach space for uh, well over a decade, and they would probably get upset with me and say it's much longer than that. That's a, a standard program that a lot of different states are using. Um, in Indiana, we've got a, a credentialing organization called ICADA, Indiana Credentialing Association on Alcohol and um, Drug Counselors. And they are who's doing the primary training for recovery coaches. So contacting them is a good uh, a, a good starting spot. Like I said, the peer association has a job board, so jobs can be posted there. Um, some people are, are choosing. So Anthem, you mentioned them earlier. They actually are the biggest employer of peer recovery coaches in our state. They've recognized the value in having people around that 
aren't clinical, that can go have coffee with people, that can give people rides, that don't have those clinical boundaries. So what they did was they sent a couple people to Connecticut to, you know, do a train the trainer, and they train all their people at house. Um, another community mental health center um, that's really prominent in the state does the same thing. You know, just like any other training, people are going to do um, a cost-benefit analysis, and a lot of times it makes more sense to train those people in-house. Um, but uh, the CCAR model is what I would look at if I were starting one. Interesting. Your comment about Anthem reminds me of something. So this is a little bit off of topic, but definitely worthwhile for listeners. You know, I was just at a conference where we had the chief medical officers from Cigna and Optum and Humana. Um, there and they were talking about alternative payment models and there is some desire to test out um, kind of an all-inclusive model so where they give like a flat rate to the provider and say okay you know what here's what you're getting you're getting fifteen thousand dollars for the month for this patient and you can do whatever you want that you think is going to be effective right and so it opens up this door to bring in recovery coaching, for example, you know, something that might not have been covered as a billable um, you know, item before. Now you can do whatever works uh, for you. So that, that would be interesting to explore. So I'd encourage any listeners to maybe explore those options with your um, insurance contracts, especially your network contracts, and see if they'd be willing to pilot some of those programs in your area. But Brandon, have you, have you seen or heard of anything like that? Absolutely. Look, you're get, you get me excited during this conversation. So, unfortunately, the majority of treatment um, is dictated by what's what insurance will pay for, and what they're paying for is really, really outdated models. You know, intensive outpatient, 72 hours of counseling. Uh, counseling alone is a really ineffective intervention when it comes to substance use disorder and addiction. But that's what everybody does because. That's what's, the, what's being paid. You know, the idea that somebody can go to a couple group counseling sessions for two months, for, for eight weeks, um, and their life's going to completely change is, is super naive. You know, a lot of times people haven't gotten back to work yet. They're barely, you know, maybe they're sleeping on the couch with their wife still, and they haven't addressed any of their underlying issues after eight weeks. And we kind of, you know, give, we give them that graduation certificate and go. And giving providers the opportunity to actually implement interventions that they want to, that they know are effective, um, to me is the way that we have to go. Um, there's a national effort um, with this. Uh, the American Hospital Association, I know, is working with a facing addiction um, with a couple, I think the National Anthem Group as well, um, to, to help create a new payer system. And it's gonna ultimately come down to you know states willingness and, and providers willingness to engage this payers as well but look nobody's happy payers aren't happy with the results they're getting so they're upset providers aren't happy with what the payers are covering and in the middle of all that you've got a whole bunch of clients that are staying sick and they're not getting well um i, I don't like to be you know speaking hyperbole or, or or whatnot but um, this system is broken as it sits right now um, when it comes to payment and, and, and treatment. Um, so we've got to do something different. Yeah, I agree. I really like the holistic model as well because it provides a lot of opportunity. But there was an interesting comment from the chief medical officer of Cigna saying that, you know, maybe even move it to a year model, which is interesting in terms of the incentives that it puts in place, right? Because then you have a situation where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to give you $30,000 for the year. And then as a provider, if they come back into treatment, well, 
that's it. You know, you you got your thirty thousand. You don't get to rebuild. So it provides an incentive for really strong outcomes based care, right? Or at least working out or networking, um, contracting with a, a model that maybe you know takes a relapse potentially relapse into account. But it'd just be really interesting, right? Because it changes that system from you know what are we billing in services to value based outcomes based care, and would that provide you know a better solution for patients? I think it's definitely worth testing out, right? No, no, no question about it. I think that's the way that it's going and the way that it should go. I hope that it goes at least. That's the way that I'll be screaming um, <laughs> in the communities and to our policymakers that it needs to go. So um, I think change is coming. Um, it's a matter of just a matter of when and exactly what it's going to end up looking like. Um, and look, there needs to be some incentive to have good outcomes, you know, um, where else do we, you know, pay people for not getting um, good outcomes or good results? And around addiction, three percent, five percent, seven percent—it's all terrible. It would be completely unacceptable with any other healthcare issue. You know, what I think would be interesting too is the family dynamic, right? Because we we constantly talk about the family struggles, um, but we don't work with them too much because honestly, it's not reimbursed, right? So you know, with a different payer model, you could work with families, which I think would be extremely beneficial for a lot of people. Um, from the recovery support specialist end, you know, do they work with the families at all, or does it tend to be kind of the one-on-one with the person struggling with addiction? No, absolutely. Uh, a family is a big part of the component. You want to pull them in. There's actually um, a training that specifically um, gives some supplemental stuff to work with families, but the, the value in the recovery coach or recovery specialist is, you know, they know around the system. Uh, they know a lot of thought processes. They, they know the ins and outs, and um, that's to me, that's just as beneficial to a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife as it is almost the person um, that they're directly caring for. So, um, yes, the, the, short, the short answer is yes, they do engage family. All right. Well, interesting conversation overall, especially around this, you know, very, very much a developing aspect of the field. Um, are there other areas that we haven't covered that you'd kind of want to give some final thoughts on? Well, some I'll just touch on real briefly. Um, are some other what I would call recovery support services. Recovery housing um, is a major um, issue um, in Indiana. Um, recovery residences that are certified by a body, that, meaning they you know meet certain standards. And still, by the way, the numbers shake out. That's uh, only about 10% of what we need. So that's a growing industry, but it provides people an opportunity to stay in structured environments um, where they can get help um, and guidance from others. You know, it really falls into that peer vein, so to speak. Um, so even if they're not getting direct recovery coach services, they are surrounded by peers. Um, and then recovery community organizations. This is a new term that we're going to hear a lot more about in the future. Uh, maybe we'll do another one of these on, on RCOs is what we call them in the next year or two. And community-based centers um, that provide those ongoing recovery supports. What you were talking about earlier, life skills. Um, interview training, how to put a resume together, how to get enrolled into college, how to get your high school equivalency, um, how to get, um, you know, these different areas of your life put back together. Um, these recovery community organizations, they've got um, a couple main components. Um, they're peer-led, um, meaning they got peers in every um, area from leadership all the way down to the front desk. Um, authentic voice. Uh, meaning that it's driven by people in the community and recovery, um, and they're going to play a big role. They also negate that problem we talked about earlier with recovery coaches. They're not tied to a payer source. They're not tied to a treatment center. They're not tied to somebody 
has financial motives. So the recovery coaches that are stationed in these RCOs um, can really truly follow somebody in and out of systems without any repercussion or, or without any financial um, uh, roadblocks, if you will. So recovery support services, peer sports, RCOs, recovery residences, how we start treating this more like a chronic condition, disorder, disease, whatever you want to call it, versus the acute care issues, uh, the acute care way that we've been treating it for so long. So I appreciate you um, taking the time to help get this message out there. It's going to be a big part. Moving forward, it already is starting to be. So um, I hope people that don't have them start looking at it. The people that do have it become leaders for other organizations and uh, help make some changes here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that with everybody because on my end, you know, I, I think is, you know, comparatively, it's, it's a low cost option, but the benefits are huge, right? There's a huge ROI from the patient end in terms of outcomes. So I think the more we can get this going from payers, from the government, from individual treatment providers, you know, everything works. Brandon, how can people contact you if they want to learn more or if they want to um, get access to some of the documents you mentioned? Absolutely. So, um, First of all, my personal email is B as in Brandon, George, bgeorge at mhai.net. Um, and then our website, recoveryindiana.org. Um, you can send me a message on there. We've got some faces of recovery. We've got some advocacy information. We've got information on peer support. So recoveryindiana.org or email me personally. I'd be happy to uh, provide any more information or answer any other questions. Fantastic. Well, Brandon, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks. Keep it up. Thanks so much. All right. Well, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you can find this podcast on anywhere where podcasts are found. And this podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic growth and marketing for treatment centers and behavioral health clinics. Thank you and talk to you next time.